traditions, let's think a minute about some of the things that we know about the church at Ephesus. What are some connections, what are some times that we see things about the church at Ephesus in the Bible? From Revelation letter? Yeah, there's a special uh, section of Revelation uh, directed to the church at Ephesus. What else? When? The very end of his second journey, he passed by there. In his third journey, he spent two or three years there. Uh, we remember his time in Ephesus, especially for what kinds of events? The riot, yeah, with the silversmiths that were upset because Paul was hurting their business, making uh, idols. That was the third journey. That was in Acts 19. And uh, we also remember another contact he had sort of with the church at Ephesus on that third journey. What was that? When he met with the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20 on his way back down toward Jerusalem and had a fairly lengthy speech there. There is another book that is closely associated with the church at Ephesus that a lot of times people don't think about. First Timothy. Because Paul left Timothy to straighten some things out at Ephesus. There's several things about the book of First Timothy that clearly were intended not just for Timothy personally, but for the church at Ephesus. So we really end up having a whole lot of biblical information about the church at Ephesus. We can even see kind of some stages they went through and so forth. I'm not going to go, you know, try to look at that in detail since we've got plenty to do just considering the, uh, the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote this book of Ephesians when he was probably where? Prison. In prison, probably where? Rome. I think probably Rome. There's debate about that, but I think that's probably the case. Ephesians sort of reminds us of another Bible book that was written about the same time. What book is kind of its twin? Uh, Colossians. Colossians and Ephesians have a lot in common if you start looking at them. In fact, we'll see later on, there's a whole verse or verse and a half of Ephesians that's all virtually word for word identical in Colossians. So that's, that's the background uh, to me of this uh, letter. Do you have any questions or comments about the background to Ephesians? Why would somebody read the first two verses? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. As always, or almost always, in uh, letters in the first century, you would start with the name of the sender. We usually put the name of the sender at the end of the letter, which makes more sense for us than it would have for them, since it's easier to go to the last page and look at the bottom than it would be to unroll a whole scroll and look at the bottom. Who's ever going to read a letter before you know who sent it? So they start with the name of the sender. Here, Paul, how does he describe himself? Yeah, he's an apostle of Christ, which means what? What does that emphasize about him? Absolutely. 
He's got the right to teach these things because he's a representative of Christ, inspired by him. He's an apostle of Christ by the will of God, so he's not acting on his own. Who's he writing to? Yes, God's special people at Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And he wishes for them grace and peace from God and from Jesus. Paul begins and ends every letter we know of him writing with grace. Because our whole lives in Christ begin and end with God's grace. And uh, it's interesting, even here in this very first two verses, it almost seems like Paul is compelled to bring Jesus into every phrase he writes. You know, he's an apostle of Christ. They live in Christ. And together with the Father, Christ is the source of grace and peace for them. And we'll see that continuing right on through the letter. The very Christ-oriented letter. Comments and questions on those first couple of verses. Well, normally at this point, there'd be a thanks section, but here it's a praise section. He will mention how he, how thankful he is for them after this section. This is one of the deepest and most profound teachings of Paul, and uh, really pretty much one sentence. It depends on how your translation divides it, but it's more or less one thought that's a huge thought right here. Uh, come on in. We're just beginning chairs if anybody's back bothers them. I see at least two more, so y'all can uh, help yourselves. Uh, but this sentence is just an amazing sentence, and uh, wow, we could spend hours on this, you know, to to try to, uh, you know, understand it and, and fully uh, delve into it, um, but just really uh, profound teaching. So would somebody read verses 3 to 14? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end to, to the end that he who were the first to hope in Christ should be the should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also 
this at least to some at some level. Certainly, we cannot possibly do justice to this. But he's praising God. And he's praising him in general terms in verse 3 because of what? What kind of blessings? Yeah, and he's going to detail those through this long paragraph. But he says, really, he's given a, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and we praise God because He's done this. It's kind of a play on words. Blessed be God, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We bless God because He's blessed us. What does he mean? that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What's the heavenly places? Church. Well, the, the church lives in the heavenly places. But I'm not sure that's the definition of the heavenly places. Could it be the spiritual realm? I think that's the best definition. That's what I've got in my notes. The realm of
to save man from sin before he ever made man. Now what does that tell you? It does tell you that. Absolutely. Certainly. Think about what you have done, what he did, if you had known what he knew. <laughs> you know, Sometimes you might have imagined, or I, I think I at one point thought of God creating man, you know, and not really realizing what was going to happen and what he was going to end up needing to do to be able to save man. And once he gets the ball rolling, then what's he going to do? He's going to have to sacrifice his son. But this teaches us that's not true. God knew what the price he was going to have to pay to redeem man before he ever made man and yet was still willing to create him. That's amazing. That God would have chosen us in him before he ever created the world. That God would have planned to sacrifice his son knowing that we would need that before he ever made us. And he still made us. That, that's, there's a lot of things to think about in that. Uh, but that surely means his choosing us is a very great and weighty thing. Now, he didn't just choose us to, you know, as some sort of just, um, you know, physical ornaments. He didn't choose us because we were so good looking or something like that. Or what did he choose us for? What was his purpose? Yes. His whole goal for us was that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be a special people for him, a holy, pure, righteous people. That, that's, that's why he chose us. Now, you already see Paul is laying groundwork for what he's going to say in the last half of the letter. If God chose us to be holy and blameless, then we'd better live that way. There's some requirements, some imperatives for us based upon the very fact that God chose us for that. Now, you know, whenever you think about God choosing, that, that sort of uh, creates some question marks because of some teachings people have done about how God chooses. There is a uh, strain of, of, of religious teaching that says that God just arbitrarily chose some people to be saved and some people to be lost, regardless of what man does. And that's not what this passage is saying at all. This passage is not talking about some sort of arbitrary choice. This is talking about God pre-choosing us in Christ. Um, and I would illustrate it this way. Um... I, for a couple of years, taught a little school, sort of, and I taught a class, and I pre-chose before the semester ever, ever started who would get an A. Everybody who got 90% or above. 
we chose him to get in. Now, I didn't choose individually, it'll be you and not you, but I chose who would get the A's. I chose that those who got 90% or above would get A's. God chose that those who are in Christ would be saved. That's the choice he made before the world ever began. Comments and thoughts. Now this choice he made was was one that we would be holy and blameless before him. That that's a phrase that we ought to start noticing more in our study. Notice more the idea of us being in the presence of God. There are so many passages in the epistles that speak of before God or the presence of God. There's so much awareness of our life being lived in God's presence. So we were to be, we were chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He not only chose us, but in verse 5, what else did He do? He predestined us. Now, love was the motivating factor. When He predestined us, he did it out of love. Now to predestine is to choose the destiny beforehand. And so God took those he'd chosen, that is those who were in Christ, and he predetermined what their destiny would be. And what would their destiny be here? Exactly. He predetermined to adopt those who were in Christ. Now, Adoption is kind of the flip side of being born again. From our perspective, we're born again. From God's perspective, he adopts us. And uh, that's kind of an interesting idea of God adopting us. Um, a few, a couple of years ago, I was talking with a, a young boy in Brazil who was adopted. Um, he was adopted, you know, very soon after he was born. But he was adopted. And he's had some, some difficulties. He's a really close friend of mine. And uh, he, was, he was 10 years old at the time. And I, I asked him one day, we were talking about some situations and issues with him. And I just said, you know, how do you feel about being adopted? Well, he just broke out crying. And we talked for a long time about that. And uh, there were several reasons why he, he was upset about that. But one of the things that I told him, when you are adopted, you know that you are wanted. When you're born naturally, sometimes that's not wanted. But if you're adopted, that's a purposeful choice on the part of your parents. They didn't have to do that. God purposely chose to make us his children you can't adopt by accident. He chose us according to the kind intention of his will. He made a free choice to do this. He wanted us to be his children. That was a delight to him. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God would want to make us his children. All of this is amazing. That God would have chosen to redeem us that he would predetermine to adopt us as his sons, 
No wonder we ought to praise God for all these spiritual blessings. And all of this, according to verse 6, the, the whole purpose behind this is to praise the glory of God's grace. God did all of this so that we would praise His grace. It is so glorious, it's so amazing, it's so incredible. And if we don't praise God's grace, we've missed the whole point of redemption. All right, comments and questions through verse 6.
choose what we are going to freely choose. Now, if you think about that too much, it'll drive you crazy. And uh, I think I think what we need to do is just, you know, be confident in God because of that. Nothing's going to catch him by surprise. And not overdose on trying to understand something that's beyond our ability to understand. But I do believe that God does know everything in advance. And yet, he does not control it by his knowledge of it. And you ain't great. What does he write? Does he take a uh, limited uh, yes, knowledge? Yes, limited foreknowledge. Uh, for me, the reason that you're, you're saying that he knew exactly. Then he, I think I I think I've heard his name. There's been a lot of stuff written recently on really limiting God's knowledge and even some other things. Uh, the best, and he would be different in that he, he would be kind of in the middle of the road because he would be more conservative and still allowing God the power to know, maybe declining to know something. That's exactly where I used to be at, but I think that's inadequate. And the best book I know on it is God. But but yeah, I think just from a standpoint of the biblical evidence, God knew what was going to happen in the future, and I don't know any reason biblically to limit. It wasn't just that God got lucky and guessed some things right about what was going to happen in prophecy. God knew what was going to happen. And if God, if God could know any future thing, any future thing dependent on free will choices of men, infallibly without fixing it, then He can know anything in the future. This is even going a little further, but I'm just trying to get a better picture of what we're talking about here with the prophecies. I mean, Boyd would argue that He makes prophecies.
this time, and he will then change based upon my changes. So God really does, you know, interact with his creatures. But I don't think that changes the fact that God knows where this is going to go. Uh, God knew that he was going to send his son to, to redeem man. He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. He still responded with Adam and Eve in the garden. He had this perfect relationship, and he was relating to them based upon where they were at, not based upon where he knew they were going to be. All of that kind of blows our mind, and there, you know, I may change my mind again on some of that, but uh, but that's certainly the way it seems to me. Well, yes. How would you respond to like um, I've heard a few that that um, like how um, Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and at that point, um, God said, "I did not know." Or now I know that you fear God. Yeah, that's the same so argument that, I used. Those are the, yeah. those are the verses that I've yeah. with. Um, that, that's the very argument I used. Uh, I remember arguing with somebody at length about that yeah. uh, on that side. Um, you know, it all depends. So many things depend on how you look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, God saying, for now I know, to me is just another one of these statements of now, in terms of his time and space relationship with man, it is evident that Abraham fears him. I don't at this point think that God was like, ha, huh, well, what do you know? Abraham does fear me. You know? So it, it, it all depends on your presupposition. And I, I argued that passage strenuously with uh, with a brother several years ago on, on the same side. But once you see it a different way, then that passage doesn't seem very strong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, okay. Yeah. And so, so often it depends on those things. And I think, you know, I think trying, and this is the challenge for all of us, you know, we've got a model, and we've got our evidence to support it or our, our evidence to refute the others. Trying to be honest with that evidence is really hard. You know, on, on all sides of those things. I'd use passages like, you know, God said, you know, some of their practices had never come into his mind. You know, well, you know, looking at it now, it's like, well, he didn't mean that it had it never crossed his mind they could do something like that. It meant he had never commanded it. He had never even started to command it, never even thought about commanding it. Not that it, it had never crossed his mind they could do it. You know, things like that. So, so often it depends on, you know, your presupposition, how you look at those texts. But nobody... Biting means is obligated to share my view on that. <laughs> Anybody else want to say anything about that? Sorry, go ahead. Some of the examples that, that I've heard in the past, uh, and thinking of some passages in Exodus, where God says that He's giving them these commandments to test their hearts to see whether they want to obey or not. The example between parents and children. Sometimes parents tell children to do something, especially when they're little, knowing that they're not going to do it. Now, knowing that you're going to have to get out and spank them or whatever else and get them back in line. Um, but they still have the choice. Yes. And, yes. You know, you have some insight into what your children are going to do. Clearly, that insight we have does not change the children's free will 
is beyond our ability to conceive, you know, the fullness of that. I mean, any way we look at God, on any dimension, it blows our mind. And that's why, I mean, in several of these things, wow. You know, you see why there were so many debates about the nature of God in the early church. Because you can't, I mean, you, you're just dealing with something so much deeper than we are. And again, you have that that need to try to balance and look at all the Bible says, try to come up with the best model we can. You know, I could easily argue that Jesus was man and not God. I could easily argue that Jesus was God and not man. Couldn't you? I mean, think about it. You know, God can't get tired. Jesus got tired there by the well. Therefore, he's a man and not God. You know, God God can't be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Therefore, he's a man and not God. Or, man can't forgive sins, but Jesus forgave sins. Therefore, Jesus is God and not man. And so, I can multiply, you can multiply those all day. Well, what do you do with that? Well, you know what a lot of people have done with that? They've taken one side of that, and they've made a doctrine about it. You know, Jesus is man and not God, or Jesus is God and not man. And, and, you know, the early Christians debated all kinds of things about that. And what we end up having to do is say, I don't completely understand how all of this works out. But when I line up all the biblical evidence, everything we can see is that Jesus was unique. He was man, and he was God. <laughs> and you try to get me to explain how all of that fully fits together, I have no idea. But I do believe the evidence indicates that both of those theses are true. And so, in any of this, any any position we take on God's foreknowledge, we are still going to be overwhelmed because we're dealing with something way beyond us. Do you think here, at least, I mean, this, in this text, we're looking at him choosing a type rather than individual? I think choosing us in him is the emphasis that he chose that those who are in him, he will adopt. That's the way I see that. He didn't choose who would come to be in him. We choose whether to be in him or not, but he chooses those who are in him. So I guess he knows who those will be, but at least what he's saying here is to Yes. Yes. Knowing and choosing are two different things. In my view. He knows things. That doesn't mean he chooses everything he knows. He knows. He knows what wicked people are going to do. He doesn't choose those things. Yeah, I mean, it's the Calvinist assumes that foreknowledge means absolute control. The opposite side assumes that foreknowledge means absolute control, therefore God doesn't have foreknowledge. My position is foreknowledge does not mean absolute control. God has foreknowledge, but he does not. That does not eliminate man's free will. That's my position. But anyhow, um, the, his grace in verse 6, he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, that's going to transition us into this next section. I don't know about this, but... Somehow we've got to to even think about this, semi-organize it in our mind. And I organized this 
by verse 6, 12, and 14, which talk about the praise of God's glory. And so I would take 3 through 6 as being to the praise of God's glory by what God has done. God chose us, God predestined us. I would take 7 to 9, 7 to 12 rather, as even more focused on the role of Christ in this. And verses 13 and 14 more focused on the role of the Holy Spirit in this. Not exclusively in any of those, but, but that's, that's kind of the way I divide this up. Uh, from the way I look at it. So, he's freely bestowed this grace on us in the blood. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. So, what did God give us in verse 7? Redemption and Forgiveness, redemption which is forgiveness. What a great blessing for God to forgive us. And that forgiveness comes on the basis of what? Yes, but in verse 7, on the basis of what? His blood, based upon his grace. Through Jesus' blood, we have forgiveness. Now, when we say through Jesus' blood, What's that really saying? Yes, by his death. Not just that he cut himself and bled, but he died. He was the atoning sacrifice. He died in our place so that we have forgiveness. And this forgiveness is in extravagant quantity. God forgives us according to the riches of his grace. According to means like in proportion to. So God's forgiveness is as abundant as the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. There's just so much grace and mercy God has given us. What a blessing. Thoughts and comments through 8a. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. This lavishing of grace was not impetuous. It was something God did in by wisdom and insight. He thought this out. He purposed it. It was according to the kind intention which he purposed it. And and what God does for us in verse 9 is he makes known to us, he reveals to us the mystery of his will. Now when you think about mystery, a mystery is something that is what? Yes. And what you have to do to a mystery to get it known is reveal it. So many of these details about redemption were not previously revealed But now through Christ, they have been revealed. We see God's purpose and intention, a purpose that's that's from before before time. And his purpose was,
sum up all things in Christ. Now, this is this happens at the proper time, the, the fullness of the times, when God saw that the time was right. His, his, his will and his purpose is to bring everything back together in Christ. Now, why were things all apart? Sin. Sin had ruptured man's fellowship with God, and for that matter, man's relationship with man. You know, I guess that Adam and Eve had gotten along okay until the sin. And then you remember what Adam said about his sin. What did he say? The woman you gave me. You know, sin really cut man's relationship with God and with his fellow man. And and so things began to be uh, separated, we might say. Not harmonious. And through Christ, the harmony is restored. Jesus unites everything back together under his headship. That's a huge purpose. And God reveals this to us through Jesus. That this whole, the whole purpose of God now is to bring everything back into a harmonious whole. He reconciles us back to God, reconciles us back to each other, and sums up then all things in Christ. What a marvelous purpose. What an extensive work God has done in Surely it's by his wisdom and insight. And that's a lot to think about. I mean, wow. There's such, it's just incredible what God has done. You know, sometimes we think of God in very limited ways. Well, you know, God wants you to go to church on Sunday and he really cares about you taking the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. And, you know, a few little, you know, maybe... Be like God wants you to treat your, you know, honor your parents, and He wants, you know, He wants us not to lie and not to steal and not to cheat. Well, all those things are true, but there's something much deeper than this. You know, sometimes all we get about God are just a few rules, just a few things God expects. But there's so much more to that. Once you really see the greatness of what God has done, then you really want to fulfill His purpose and love Him and live for Him and praise Him. Because of this great thing he has done. Well, thoughts and comments through verse 10. That's pretty remarkable. Anytime we get to thinking that we pretty well have got all this figured out, go back and read Ephesians 1. You know, in him also, and there's a translational question here, I'm not sure about this. In whom in him also we have obtained an inheritance, or in him also we were made a heritage. Um, either of those works okay. Uh, you know, makes sense. Uh, the idea is either he's we've received an inheritance from God or we are what God inherits. Either of those makes sense to me in the context. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So so God's determination and planning to do this 
was done by God consulting who? No one. This was strictly God working after the counsel of his own will. He purposes all of this by his own insight, something he's predetermined, and the goal is that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We are not created for ourselves. We are created for God. We are created to be to the praise of his glory. The whole goal of redemption, more than just to bless us, the goal of redemption is for God's glory and grace to be praised. So often we think about man as being the highest goal. We want man to be able to go to heaven and enjoy, you know, fishing all the time or something like that. That's blasphemous to me. You know, no, the whole point isn't even what we're going to receive. The whole point of redemption is the glory that God receives and the praise he receives by this wonderful plan that he has executed through Christ. That's the goal. You know, I, I often think about 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the motivation for evangelism. Where in verse 15 he says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Spread the gospel more so more people will glorify God. That's our highest goal. God to be glorified and honored. Now, he speaks in verse 12. We who were the first to open Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then he'll say in verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth and so forth. Now, there's, there's considerable debate about who is the um, who is the first to hope in Christ and who is the you also. Who's the we and the you there? That is narrowly my position. <laughs> That's one I'm still wrestling with, but at the moment that seems better to me slightly than other options. Um, and I would particularly say that because of chapter 2, verses 11 and following, where he definitely has uh, the Jews and the Gentiles sort of separated off. If it weren't for that, I don't know that I would say that. But, but I suspect that is what he's saying. The Jews were the first to open Christ. They're to the praise of his glory. But the Gentiles also, in verse 13 and 14, were, were given the foretaste of the inheritance, and they are to the praise of God's glory. Um, we, those that Paul, Paul and his associates versus them and those he's writing to the Ephesians. Yes, that would be another option. Yeah. Pro probably the Jew-Gentile distinction is not the majority of but I still have a hard time giving it up, so probably not a lot. Maybe a little. Other thoughts through 12? Comments? Questions?
in 13 and 14. In him you also, perhaps now the Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Now those are the steps we have to take to listen to the truth and believe. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, wow, there's a lot in that and I'm not sure that I completely fathom that. In fact, I'm sure I don't. But this Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Think about that for a moment. A pledge would be like earnest money or a down payment. What we've received as we receive the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of the greater blessings we will receive. Do we have the ultimate in spiritual blessings now? No, we don't. Do we have a portion of spiritual blessings now? Yes, we do. We have already received the down payment through the Spirit. We've received spiritual blessings that are the foreshadowing of the great blessings we will have when God redeems his own possession. Um, now, you know, in what sense are we sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? You know, one possibility, and again, this is not very well uh, represented among commentaries and so forth, but I think is worth thinking about the possibility. I wonder if there's any possibility this has some reference back to Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 and 11. They're receiving the Holy Spirit as Gentiles, and that being sort of a God's authentication, God's sealing them as being fit subjects for the gospel as well. At least I think that's worth throwing out. But, but, but more broadly, certainly the Old Testament speaks constantly about the messianic age as being the age of the spirit the age when the spirit would be poured out and that men would be blessed with God's spirit the New Testament talks about that a lot and so certainly it's also true that our reception of the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of the ultimate blessing of the redemption of God's own possession. When God finally redeems us, when he finally takes full possession of us, when when our bodies are raised and we're brought into the heavenly kingdom, then we will have the fullness of which the Spirit is the pledge. And all of this, all of it is to the praise of his glory. The glory of God is the final purpose of God's own comments and thoughts. If you're really seeing this, I, this text is how much God has invested in us. So much. He's done so much. So amazing. Should we take a poll on the temperature in here? Yes. How many are too warm? <laughs> Why don't we open a window or something? Yeah. <laughs> 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 
not much. You would assume a whole lot more Gentiles than Jews. But I mean, there were Jews, but but you know, I, I mean, I don't think we rarely have the majority.
But secondly, when Paul prays for people, have you ever noticed the the kinds of things Paul prays for them for? Any differences you see between what Paul prays for people and what we pray for people? Yeah, he is. And way more spiritually focused. There are times when I would assume from listening to public prayers in places where I am that about all God thinks about with us is health and safety on the road. It's not bad for us to pray for health or safety on the road. I don't think. Although sometimes God, we might honor the Lord more if we were sick and in an accident. It may not always be God's will that we be healthy and safe. But be that as it may, you rarely read Paul praying about those things. Not that he never prayed for something like that, but his, his constant prayers for his brethren were so much deeper. They're so much more spiritual. And here, he's really praying that they know God. You know, that's, that's the, the, the goal here. Praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That, that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that they would know three things. So that they would really know the hope of their calling. So that they would really know God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And so that they would really know God's great power for us. Wow, that's a lot. You know, can you imagine Paul constantly praying for you that you would know, you really know the hope of your call. You really know what your hope was. That you'd really understand the great value God places on you. That we are his inheritance. And that we would really know the greatness of God's power toward us. Now that's what he really focuses on. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his mind. Now, before we look at all that he says about knowing about God's power for us, why would we ever need God's power? Absolutely. We are fighting a spiritual battle that our power in itself is absolutely not adequate. And when we face temptation, what happens if we try to face it in our own strength? We lose. We need God's power when we face temptation. We need God's power when we face overwhelming and fearful situations. To have courage and strength to stand up for him and to do what's right. Maybe you felt the need for God's power. Hopefully, surely we have. How much power of God is really available for us? How much as we need? Wow. The amount of power God has for us, he speaks of the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, if he stopped there, don't we all believe that God has surpassingly great power? We believe God's all power. 
But he doesn't just say that. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he uses an illustration. He says this is in accordance, in proportion to the working of the strength of his might. Well, now the working of the strength of his might that he talks about is God's power that was applied to do what? Raise Jesus from to the highest place all the universe and beyond. Can you imagine the power it took? I mean, wow, the power it would take even to raise him from the dead and just sit him on the earth. That's a whole lot more power than any of us have ever thought about having. But God's power raised him to his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name in his name. God raised him to the highest possible place. And the power that took Jesus from the dead and put him on high is the surpassingly great power for us who believe. If we would only turn to God's strength, what would happen when we faced him? What would happen when we feel fearful and inadequate if we really understood if our, the eyes of our heart were truly enlightened to really know the surpassing greatness of this power which is toward us who believe. I'm just thinking, just being reminded when we talk about the power that God has to resurrect and to bring life back into something that is dead. I was reminded in two instances, once in Mark, once in John, where Jesus says, oh, not, they're not dead, they're only sleeping. You know, and when you think of, you know, we can go and wake somebody up with a couple words, you know, if they're just sleeping. That's how Jesus viewed them when they were dead. Yes. I, I can just go say a few words and wake them up. And he did. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. God's power is partially illustrated by what little effort it takes him to accomplish things. You start noticing that. It's amazing. You know, he created the whole universe in Psalm 33 with the breath of his mouth. <laughs> wow. I mean, so often it's a gesture or, or some, you know, I've never yet read in the Bible where God broke a sweat. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen if he did? <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, he's been able to do all that he's done so far, as far as we can tell, with almost no effort whatsoever. What if he actually put forth some effort? <laughs> That's just an un un incredible power for us who believe. And, and so he raised Jesus far above all his competitors. And he put everything in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body. Here again, he is our head. He is the supremely exalted one who is over us. He is the one who fills all. He is incredible and his power is for us. Comments and questions? On chapter 1. I got a question on verse 23. It says that we as the church are to 
understand that phrase. Good.
as I can do so. Other thoughts? Other thoughts? Suggestions? Questions? Yes.